Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. Join us on May 14th for ATS 2021, our annual conference that showcases the latest research and innovations in respiratory medicine. Discover breakthroughs in science, medicine, and patient care. Register now at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. and welcome to Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing a paper published in HS Scholar entitled Simulation-Based Mastery Learning Improves Resident Skill Managing Mechanical Ventilators. We will be joined by Dr. Clara Schredel, the first author of the paper. Dr. Schredel, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. Do you mind introducing yourself for, for our listeners? Sure. Um, my name is Clara Schredel. I am an assistant professor of medicine and medical education at Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, I also serve as the program director for our fellowship as well as the medical director for continuing medical education for our university and health system. Okay, so you're a medical educator, great. Uh, can we just jump in into the paper and, and start with what for me looks like, like the most, uh, the biggest important question in your paper? Sure, I'd love to. Okay, so your study found that a simulation-based mastery learning curriculum is more effective than traditional training, didactic lectures and uh, bedside teaching, and that residents exposed to the simulation curriculum were more likely to achieve mastery of mechanical ventilator clinical skills. Do you think simulation-based teaching should become the new standard of care or standard of teaching for teaching mechanical ventilator? Should we abandon uh, didactic lectures and invest teaching time on simulations? Thank you for that question. I, I don't think we should abandon our traditional methods. I think that everything that we have adds value and simulation has been around from, for some time. And, and, and when we add it to our traditional didactic teaching and bedside teaching, I think uh, there's opportunity uh, for growth for our learners. There's a natural fit for using simulation. I think a lot of the literature is focused around procedural training or situations that are high risk but low frequency. But as a critical care physician, I found mechanical ventilation to be something that was anxiety provoking for me as a learner when I was a resident and fellow and for the residents that I work with now. It's so important to what we do in the ICU it just seemed like it deserved more attention than what we were currently doing, which was some didactic teaching um, and our bedside teaching going through different case scenarios. So it seemed like a really natural fit for applying simulation in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think a lot of residents feel really anxious and in front of a ventilator. Uh, and especially I think with the COVID pandemic, all the residents were so exposed and, and all of a sudden, I think many of them realized how important it was to, to get it right. So um, I, I completely agree that simulation uh, can, can teach 
a lot of the skills and also take off some of the anxiety of it. Absolutely. And it's interesting, our study was fully conceived of and executed well before COVID came out. Um, but as we uh, welcomed more non-internal medicine or, or non-critically care trained trainees into our units to help with the influx of patients, I think, you know, robust education uh, was really, really critical during this time. So can you tell us what was the motivation for this study? Were instructors in your ICU noticing gaps in, in mechanical ventilation skills at the end of rotation? Or were the learners unhappy with their progress uh, or both? What, is, what was the biggest trigger to, to this study? Sure. So some of my co-authors, Dr. Wayne and Barsik, as well as Bill McGahey, who is um, has a long track record of simulation and specifically simulation-based mastery learning um, at my institution had demonstrated value of this kind of educational intervention in many skills that we were applying at our own institution, ACLS, central line, thoracentesis. But, you know, again, I had to ask myself if I'm gonna add value to the training program in critical care that I care so much about, what's the most challenging kind of frequent and important thing that we do in our ICU in mechanical ventilation always rose to the top. I also found just on a personal level that as I rounded, each time we would sort of gather at the bedside to go through the ventilator settings for one of our patients, the whole team would sort of circle around. You could see that their interest was really peaked and it just felt it felt important to me, and that's why I decided to pursue it. And can you can you tell us? I, I you you explained this in the paper. What is what is special about the simulation based mastery learning? What what how is this different from what we usually call simulation? Sure. So simulation based mastery learning is really just a vigorous form of competency based medical education. It's trying to ensure that all of our learners reach some standard uh, to demonstrate their performance or their competence at the end of some in educational intervention. So instead of saying it's good enough to just improve from a pretest to a post-test score, and maybe you demonstrate statistical significance from some sort of a intervention, this is taking it a step further and it's saying, how can we decrease the variability? How can we bring every learner up to a predetermined mastery level? And I use the term mastery because that's what's used in the literature. We know that we're not gonna achieve mastery of mechanical ventilation. That, that's a very complex skill, but could we bring all the residents up to a level of mastery on some of the skills? that we think a resident finishing an IC rotation should certainly have by the time they're done. I see. You had three aims for this study. Can you briefly tell us what they were and why did you think these were the most important questions to ask when, when doing a, a simulation study? So we had three aims with our study. The first was, could we design and implement a simulation-based mastery learning curriculum for our residents in the MICU? Could we agree upon the learning objectives, create a skills assessment, and how are we gonna be able to actually implement this into a busy ICU rotation? The second aim was really to determine if we could improve their knowledge and skills. And we wanted to do more than just 
educate. We wanted to actually bring all of them up to our predetermined mastery score. And then the third thing was to see if any characteristics of our learners would predict their performance. For example, did prior ICU experience predict somebody who may or may not do better on this skills exam? I see. Uh, and uh, in some ways we could say then that those aims are all connected. And of course, I mean, you, you had to do the three of them to, to make sure you capture everything you, you would learn from um, comparing a, a curriculum with simulation with the traditional teaching strategy, right? So sure. for yeah. me, it looks like you, you, you actually, uh, they're very intertwined the three objectives. Yes, I, I agree. Okay, and uh, can you tell us uh, briefly how how each of the groups was, uh, what what was the intervention, what was the traditional teaching or the control group? Yeah, so our C our ICU has two resident teams, um, and and we recognize that every every institution is going to have a very different structure, but. Our teams were led by a faculty member and fellow, and then there'd be two residents and two to four interns per team. And when we said traditional training, what we meant was that all of our residents rotating on a four week IC rotation would go through a MICU didactic curriculum. This would consist of 30 to 45 minute lectures twice a week for the duration of their ICU block. Um, topics would be acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, hypercapnic respiratory failure, mechanical ventilation, NIV, among several others. In addition, everybody had their traditional rounding and bedside teaching, and then informal teaching sessions that would be put on by the fellow or the faculty member. So that sort of made up our traditional training that all of our residents uh, have each time they're in the ICU. What was different then for our simulation-based mastery learning group is that first they all underwent a pretest during their first week of the rotation. We created a 47 item checklist. Following that, they had about an hour and a half of time of didactic as well as deliberate practice with the simulator. So we'd go through different scenarios uh, after a didactic lecture, um, allow them to push the buttons and give them feedback on the things that they were seeing. We went through topics like mode, initial settings, respiratory mechanics, um, weaning from the ventilator. And then at the completion of the rotation during their fourth week, all of our learners underwent a similar, yet the questions were slightly different, uh, simulated skills assessment that we called their post-test. For those in the simulation group who did not achieve the mastery score, that was okay. We allowed them more practice and feedback and they would again repeat the test until they were able to achieve the mastery score. Okay, so the simulation group also got the, the didactic. So the, whatever the, the traditional training group had, so remind, um, let me know if I'm not saying this correctly, but they have mm -hmm. like four lectures. Uh, you mentioned on the paper uh, bootcamp training, probably at the beginning of the of the program for the interns and, and informal bedside teaching. Yeah, so they were twice weekly. So they got about eight lectures. Um, and I didn't mention, but you're right, our interns coming in out, go through a boot camp as well. And in their boot camp is multiple different um, skills, including critical care skills, um, such as ventilation. So the group that, that was submitted, to, the intervention group submitted to the simulation, they also uh, went through this other training. 
In your opinion, what is the relative, I mean, can, can we say with some confidence, what is the relative importance of these other components? Uh, do you, I, I'm assuming you felt though they were important too because, because the, the simulation group uh, didn't do only simulation. They also uh, were exposed to this other type of training. So uh, what is the importance of these other components? And if they are important, uh, why is performance at the end of the rotation so low for the traditionally trained group? That's a good question. Um, I, I think they're important. You know, that's sort of our like every rotation that residents will go through, there'll be some sort of a curriculum. Um, and so we didn't want to withhold our traditional curriculum. We just wanted to enhance upon it. Um, but you're right. I think if the goal of an educational intervention, such as a didactic curriculum or anything else, is achievement of some sort of a, a competency at the end of it, we should be holding our teachers and learners accountable to achieving that standard. And, and maybe what this shows is that our traditional educational methods are insufficient, at least if we are using a, a measured value of skills on a, on a validated skills checklist that we created. Yes, I, I agree with you. And, and I think this is something that uh, other studies have shown that um, that these learners, they, they come out of their residency programs and sometimes fellowship programs, uh, and they, they report that they feel they, they don't know everything they should know about ventilators. So uh, it makes a lot of sense. So, so it looks like, and you said this at the beginning of our talk, that, that if you felt like uh, simulation was just another component. So simulation is not coming as a substitute for the traditional training, but rather as, as an extra component, maybe we don't really know if, uh, if you only did the simulation, would they have uh, other, other components important for learning so that they would um, perform so well at the post-test? Uh, I don't know if, if you agree with that. So if we did the simulation alone without any of the other components? I, I think that's a good question. I, I think that, um, the, it's the deliberate practice, I think, that really is impactful. Um, I'm basing that on some of the other studies that have been published, but putting your hands on the ventilator and having that ability to get real-time feedback and see what's happening as changes are being made. Um, I don't want to undervalue what it means to do bedside teaching or didactics, but a ventilator is like living and breathing and being able to see it changing in action, I think is really valuable. Um, so I think the, the entire package, the whole bundle of it is really important. And something we haven't talked about is the importance of the pretest. I think that the fact that we utilized a pretest is really important. It's using an assessment tool to prime the learners for the rest of their rotation. So taking a pretest and recognizing, wow, I have a lot of gaps. I really have a lot to learn, I think is using it to drive their education more than just a baseline skills assessment. Yeah, I like, I like your approach of this as saying this is a bundle of combination of different uh, strategies to help learners achieve mastery or uh, 
mastery, at least at the basic skills of mechanical ventilation. So I have another question for you. So you, you mentioned that, uh, that one of the components of the traditional uh, teaching and in the end for all the, for all the learners was uh, what they, they would learn during round or when they actually caring for patients. So uh, how, how does that work in your MECUs? Do, do residents usually, are, are they responsible for adjusting the ventilator? And if not, are they, uh, would they go together with somebody else to make adjustments? Because I suppose this practice can vary a lot across programs and hospitals and countries. Do you think this is an important learning activity for residents to achieve mastery in mechanical ventilation skills? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right that um, how and who changes ventilators certainly is going to vary uh, significantly across institutions. What I found at our institution is that the residents are often the first call. So if a bedside nurse or a respiratory therapist is recognizing an issue, often it's the intern or the residents that's going to be notified first. They have an enormous amount of backup with their faculty and their attendees who may come to the bedside and actually make changes. But often it's you know, a, a relatively simple question, a patient who may be desatting or maybe a, a peak pressure has started to go up throughout the day. And we're trying to empower the residents to be able to take that information and troubleshoot and decide what the next best step is. But they're never alone. Certainly our respiratory therapists are absolutely amazing and have great skills in managing the ventilators, um, as well as our fellows and our faculty to, to provide backup. Um, but that might be a very different kind of structure at different uh, teaching institutions. Um, I, I could imagine that different places would address it quite differently than we do. Yeah, well, I, I think the model you just described is very similar to what happens in my ICU. So the residents are first line and trying to troubleshoot the ventilator, but the, they have a backup. And it, it, to me, it looks like this is very, very important because, and I, and I think it has to do with the simulation because after you've, you've, you've uh, played with the simulator and you've seen what you can do, for example, if the peak pressure is too high and th there could be more than one strategy to, to, to resolve that problem. And, and if you're doing this in a ventilator with a simulator, you, you're not very nervous of doing something wrong. So you would try more, more strategies or try to go back and change to another one. So I, 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 I'm imagining that the combination of learning uh, with the simulator and then having the ability to do this at the bedside was actually very, very important in your study. I think so. And the other point I have not mentioned yet is that, you know, you're, you're at the mercy of the, the patients that are admitted to your ICU and you could have a week where you have all GI bleeds and uh, DKA for, for a whole week um, versus the other team has all ARDS. Um, you might go a whole month and never see severe asthma. Um, and so the other thing that this allowed was the scenarios that we created allows a bit of a leveling of the play playing field so that all residents had at least some exposure, whether in real patient care or the simulated environment, to sort of the common physiologies that we're gonna see in the ICU. 
so restricted lung disease with ARDS, obstructive lung disease and severe COPD or asthma, as well as general ideas around initial settings and weaning that are quite common. I absolutely agree with you that recently our fellows came to me and said, you know, we're worried we, we will, because of COVID, we don't, we haven't ventilated any, any asthma patients or COPD because our, our ICU is all COVID now. And uh, so we, we did simulations too, because they, they felt like they, they wouldn't have the opportunity. And, and this is of course, a, a special times, but as you mentioned, you could spend months without seeing a patient with asthma in the ICU, um, thanks for better uh, clinical treatment. And, and simulation really does open that opportunity for, and for teaching all residents in a, in, and exposing them to all the possibilities. And it's interesting you bring up COVID here because something I recognized, my institution used mostly volume control ventilation. I think there's a lot of just institutional culture around um, how you set your ventilators. Um, but what's so interesting about COVID was that we suddenly were using different modes, um, more pressure control, continuing to use volume control, um, obviously much more high flow, some NIV. And so I, I think it was interesting because when I designed the checklist, I designed it with our institution in mind, which was mostly volume control, but there is a section of it where we ask the learners to sort of convert somebody from a volume to a pressure control mode. And what I found was universally, that was a very difficult concept for the residents, not to suggest that it's easy, it is complicated, um, but I wonder now if we had done it post COVID because my residents really have had a lot more exposure to different modes and not just volume control if maybe they would have even done a little better on that, that portion of the test. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I also wanted to ask you that the simulation curriculum consisted of one session, right? Except for the, the, the pre-test, the post-test, and, and some of the residents might need uh, other, other um, training with the simulator so they achieve the minimum passing score. But, but mostly the, the main training was one session. Do you think this, that one session is the ideal duration? Would you consider other possibilities? Was, was this choice based also on, on I mean, trying to uh, fit the schedules of everyone? That, that's exactly right. So not only the schedules of our busy residents, but also of myself, as well as my fellows who are in charge of the education and the testing. Um, as you can imagine, which is a limitation to our study, it's very time intensive. The argument is if you want to achieve a, a good outcome, um, it demonstrates that you must put the time in. Um, I think you could approach this in several ways. I think dividing up um, the, the educational content with deliberate practice time into two or three sessions would absolutely be wonderful. Um, I think you would just whatever you could do to fit it into your workflow, I think is the most important thing. Okay, so I, I'd like to turn to, to the results of your paper. Would you, would you mind summarizing the, the main results? Sure, yeah. So the main results of the study is we have two groups, a simulation group and a traditional training group. Um, and what we found is that between the pre and the post-test in our simulation group, as expected, we had a dramatic improvement in their scores. 
So moving from a mean score of about 50% pre-test to 86% post-test. This didn't quite achieve our minimum passing score, which we had set at 87%, but it was close and about half of our trainees did make it above that score um, on their first attempt. With additional practice, we were able to bring the whole group above our minimum score um, for a mean score of about 92% on their post-test. And if we compare this to our traditionally trained group on their post-test score, they got about 60% correct. So about 10% more than uh, the pre-test for our simulation group, suggesting that just going through an IC rotation and having our traditional curriculum has value. It, it improves their scores um, on the simulated checklist that we have. Um, but 60% and also an enormous amount of variability. So just one of the group that were traditionally trained actually met our minimum passing score of 87% on their post-test. Um, and you had just a huge spread. You had some having scores of around 25% and you had some that were up close to 80%. So I think the important take home from that is that, again, of course the education is gonna improve the scores, but it really can improve it for everybody. We don't have to be satisfied with a widespread, a normal distribution around a mean. We can actually get everybody up to a minimum passing standard of say 87% of what we said in this, in this study. Yeah, this, this part, this result of, of not a very big increase in the post-test for the traditionally trained residents compared to the pre-test, um, is one that that intrigued me or <laughs> worries me a little bit. So that's uh, this is something we talked in the beginning, um, in the in the sense that whatever we are doing during a rotation, I I would expect that the residents score better. So my my I guess my question to you is is kind of goes back to something I, I asked before, but now looking at those results. Uh, does it, it looks like what, we, what we're doing with a one month rotation in the ICU uh, to teach mechanical ventilation is, is not a lot. How can, we, how can we get better at this? Do you think that simulation is, is, the, is the best answer? Is there something else that we're missing uh, that, that could explain why, why the traditionally trained residents, which is how most residents in the US and Brazil and many other countries are taught. Um, uh, do you think this training is, uh, well, it looks like it's not very effective. How, how do you see, uh, uh, what do you think are our options uh, seeing in this result? Sure, so, I mean, we do a good job. I, I you know, I, I, I have to believe that we're training our residents to go on to, you know, apply to subspecialty fellowships. We're training wonderful doctors. So we're doing, we're doing something right, but to not think that we can do better, I think is, uh, you know, short-sighted for us. Certainly we can do better. And, you know, for the sake of this study, we chose mechanical ventilation. I'm certain that there are a million other skills that you could choose to focus on. I just thought that mechanical ventilation is so critical and core to our specialty that it was a natural fit. 
So, you know, I think it depends how you're going to define what the outcome is you hope to achieve. Um, we can't possibly use mastery learning for every skill um, that we would hope a resident would finish their training um, and be master of. Um, but we do have to be careful about watered down curriculum. Um, everything we do is really time intensive. Asking people to participate in didactic lectures is, we need it to be valuable, not only for the person giving the lecture to make it worth our time, but also for the learners. And if what we're doing is sort of a watered down a curriculum to not achieve the outcome that we want, then we definitely should rethink it. But I suppose that's where you ask, like, what is the outcome you hope to achieve? Um, for this, we defined a minimum passing score on a validated checklist that we created as an important outcome. Other institutions may have different outcomes that they find important or find the checklist not relevant to their patient population. But I think that's where you have to start. You have to start with what you hope to achieve. And then in our case, recognizing that a mean score of 60% at the end of a rotation is not what we were hoping to achieve as far as skills related to mechanical ventilation. I hope that answers your question. Yes, yes, and, and I agree. I think we should, be, we should always be trying to identify problems with wherever we are, uh, the rotations and our teaching uh, methods and, and trying to improve. And, and your studies certainly show that that doing the simulation uh, did just that was was um, very effective at um, getting the residents at that mastery level, even if they needed more than than one session, which is I, I guess also expected, right? We don't expect all the learners to be at the same level or learn at the same pace, so it makes a lot of sense that some people might need more training and. It, and makes a lot of sense that you would offer the opportunity of, uh, for these learners to, to, um, to have as many sessions as they need to, to reach that, that high bar that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think that's becoming much more apparent in medical education in general, just recognizing that time variable education is important. Uh, you can see that in studies around bronchoscopy skills. We're not all gonna uh, master some skill in the same amount of time and allowing people the opportunity for additional practice when needed and recurrent assessment, I think is really important. I, I actually have another question about the, the minimum passing score. I, looking at the number, it's like 87% of the, of the test. That's, that's quite high. Not that I'm saying we shouldn't aim for a high number, but can you comment is, how is this um, high number uh, compared to, to other minimum passing scores in other areas? Yeah, so, so it is a high number. So we expected that um, our residents could achieve a high bar. I think it's important to ask sort of how we came up with that score. Um, and what we did is when we created this checklist through collaboration with many critical care doctors across different specialties who manage patients requiring mechanical ventilation, then what we did is what's called a standard setting exercise. And you can read more about it in the, in the method section. But basically we asked each question on that checklist. We asked um, a group of critical care physicians. Uh, we asked them in order to consider somebody well-prepared, how many residents are gonna get this question right? And for some questions, it might've been 
every single resident should be able to tell you what the peak pressure is on a ventilator, for example. You might say 100%, but a more difficult question, like um, something around the adjustment of the PEEP, for example, you might say, well, I think maybe only 50% of well-trained residents are gonna be able to get that correct at the end of their ICU rotation. And so we did that for every single question. And our critical care physician thought our residents could do quite well. Um, and so when we summed up all those answers, we got 87% correct, excuse me, 87% correct as what they deemed a well-prepared resident would be able to achieve at the end of their ICU rotation. So it is a high bar, um, but I think we did show in our study that many were able to achieve it on their first attempt. Um, and several, you know, the rest were able to come up with just a minimal amount of additional practice. Yes, and as we said, we all agree that a high bar is, is good for everyone, right? Especially if you have, if you can give the opportunity to, for the learners to try again and, and have more training and then try to achieve that, it makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Yeah. Um, still, still looking at the post-test, uh, uh, you mentioned on, on the paper that the pre-test was really similar to the post-test. So in the limitation section, you, you actually comment that, 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 that you, uh, of course, had to consider the possibility that the, the residents in the simulation uh, group were trained to the test. Do you, yeah. think, do you think it was hard for the residents in the traditionally trained um, group? Was it hard to take this test? Did it depend a lot on the simulator or not really? It was just a case-based and, and they could, it, I'm, 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 what yeah, I, I guess I mean, what I'm trying to say is, do you think, do you think the test uh, really measured what you were looking for? Not only sure. ability to learn from a, from a simulator. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important question. I think, uh, you know, our residents these days are very familiar in the simulated environment. It's been a part of their education, at, especially at my institution, since they were students, certainly. And so I think there's some familiarity there that helps with that. The other thing that's neat about a mechanical ventilator simulator is that you're looking at a ventilator, which is really no different than if you were at the bedside attached to a patient and you're making changes and asking questions based on that ventilator. And so while there's not a patient laying in the room, the output on the ventilator is very similar to what they're comfortable with. And so in that context, I don't think that they were uncomfortable with um, the test itself. I do think that it was a good test of sort of their knowledge and skills in managing that ventilator. Um, as I discussed much earlier, they didn't have the added value of having had a pretest early in the rotation because that's not a part of our traditional training. Um, so they may have been less familiar with the type of questions that we were asking. Though you could argue that the type of questions that we asked on our skills checklist are quite similar to questions we would ask while rounding with a resident. We might ask them what the compliance was or um, does the patient have auto peep or what do you wanna do with the FIO2? So I think that their familiarity was there, um, but certainly we weren't able to account for everything. 
Yeah, I, I, and I, I agree. And if you, I mean, if you work with uh, with a competency list, for example, then all residents know what we think is important for them to learn and what would what would be asked of them in the test. So I I, I agree with you. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sherdo, do you think how feasible uh, is, in your opinion, to implement? a curriculum just like the one you, you did in your study in other programs, not only in, in terms of having the simulator and the room to perform the simulations, but mostly in terms of faculty and, and learner time? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, obviously, you have to have some sort of technology um, in order to do this. Um, the time thing is the most difficult part. Um, the time for your instructors to be there, the time for your learners away from their traditional daily work duties. It sort of gets back to the point that you made earlier though, that it, it depends what your goal is. Um, and if your goal is to achieve some level of knowledge and competence in mechanical ventilation by the end of your rotation, you're not gonna achieve that goal without putting the time in. And so it, it depends what you value, I suppose, as a, as a residency program or a training program and where you wanna be able to focus your attention. But you know, to, to water things down or to put the minimal amount of time in, I think we're not gonna achieve the outcomes that, that we hope. Um, I don't think that skills such as learning, learning to use the simulator is, is relatively easy. Um, you can even think of, I think, really interesting ways that you could adapt this type of curriculum. Um, there's not really a reason you couldn't adapt this checklist to be a bedside skills assessment. Now you'd have to have patients that sort of meet certain criteria such that you could ask the type of questions, for example, around ARDS, um, which shouldn't be a problem in many ICUs these days. Um, but you could, you could certainly adapt um, the checklist in a way that um, if you didn't have a simulator that you could use a similar skills checklist on actual patients, um, for example. Yeah, I guess that would make a lot of sense for, for many countries like Brazil. Although we do, yeah. we do have an ASL 5000 in our institution, but um, many other institutions don't and it makes a lot of right. sense to adapt the adapt the checklist. And have you continued to do the curriculum after the study? Because I mean, are you doing this in your ICU right now or, or not really so, because of not, the COVID? Yeah, not, not because of COVID. Um, everything was absolutely just thrown upside down. Obviously I'm in a big city in Chicago and um, um, well, certainly we've, we've been better off than some areas. It's been a really hard year for us. Um, we, what I have done is adapted this in a couple of different ways. And so as a fellowship program director, I've been using a similar checklist for my incoming fellows, recognizing they're all coming from residency programs that have different, um, different degrees of comfort with ventilators coming in. And so we're sort of using a modified checklist during orientation for them to get them all on the same page. Additionally, we've used it with our advanced practice providers. And so helping um, our new APPs get onboarded and get comfortable 
um, with mechanical ventilation, as well as a number of other um, procedures that we use a similar educational strategy for, like central line placement, thoracentesis, and for example. So it's, it's not currently in its form, which it was designed, but it's been modified to sort of fit with the times and what we're currently able to achieve based on the craziness that we're all dealing with. Yes, yes, that makes sense. Um, okay, Dr. Sherdo, it was great having you here. It's Kalali today. Thank you so much for, for coming here and, and answering these questions. Dr. Ferreira, thanks for having me and letting me share a little bit about the work that we're doing. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.